Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 73 of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today has quite the interesting story, and well, he got his first taste of business as a chimney sweep, and later he'd go on to found one of the largest residential roofing companies in the country. But uh, most of all, Steve Weil is a sales expert, and today he's a trainer for Sandler Training here in Columbus. And we definitely think you'll learn a lot from this episode, so listen close. And if you have any questions for Steve, you can check out his email down in the show notes. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mr. Steve Weil. And Steve founded Able Roofing in 1986, and Able grew to 19 locations, becoming the largest residential roofing company in the United States and the fourth largest residential commercial roofing company. Uh, and that's from Roofing Contractor Magazine's Top 100, with over $105 million in annual sales. Uh, Steve eventually sold Able and Currently, he's working as the partner for Sandler Training here in Columbus, and welcome to Conquering Columbus, Steve. We're excited to have you on the show today. Uh, thanks for having me. So how's your typical day going? I mean, we're out here uh, on the lake 
out by Hoover Dam, so it's pretty nice out. Kind of, what's like a typical day look like for you currently? Uh, typical day. Well, uh, well, today is a weekend, so right. uh, you know, this morning at the gym. Uh, um, but before I was at the gym, I was you know doing some emails in the morning, and then uh, I don't know. I'm just gonna kind of take it easy a little bit this afternoon. So, what's a typical day look like for me? Um, well, uh, you know, I still work. Uh, I still work a lot. And um, the only thing that's changed, I don't set my alarm anymore. <laughs> so, so I had one goal uh, for the la for actually 2017, not to set my alarm. And I think 90, about 95% of my days, I don't have to set my alarm. But my schedule's pretty busy. So um, I still put in a lot of hours, and um, I meet with a lot of uh, I meet with a lot of people. Meaning, I meet with a lot of sales teams. I meet with business owners, and and then I do a lot of uh, uh, what I'd call workshop or, or classroom training. So before we dive too far and in deep into what you're doing today, and uh, I kind of like to hear the path leading up to where you were able to not set your alarm anymore, and kind of hear about your background a little bit, and then. Um, how you became an entrepreneur and, and go from there. Okay, um, so how did I come, become an entrepreneur? Uh, I think it probably ran in the family. Um, so uh, my dad was self-employed. He was a CPA. And then at, I think at 45, he completely switched careers and got into uh, more on the investment side, uh, estate planning and pension plans and things like that. Uh, but again, entrepreneurial. So I think I... I saw that as, as my path, and I remember when I was in um, I remember when I was in, in college, and I was just about to graduate from college. My sister had asked me. She said, "So you can start interviewing for a job," and and nobody ever asked me that. I didn't really think about it, and um, and uh, I told her, "I go, no, I'm not going to work for somebody else." And I really had no idea what I was gonna what I was gonna do actually. So. Um, um, but I knew I was going to do something. So I guess I can share with you how I kind of got into this business. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. So, um, so I was still in my senior year of college and I was, um, I, I was selling, I got this job, uh, commission only selling alarm systems, uh, burglar alarm systems for a company. Uh, they gave me no training. The only training they gave me was be really, you know, make friends with people and talk about everything and anything but the actual product and once they like like you they'll buy from you um it didn't work <laughs> so i didn't sell anything <laughs> but i remember i was in the parking lot and i met a um i met a chimney sweep and i got into a conversation with him and he had told me that um he said he said he was making all kinds of money and 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 it was interesting because um i wasn't making all kinds of money at that point i was thinking i wanted to make all kinds of money so um, that night, I called my uh, one of my very good friends from high school and asked him if he wanted to make all kinds of money too. And he said, "Yeah, he's in." So we be we decided to become chimney sweeps that night. <laughs> so um, what were you studying in college at this point? Uh, so I went to um, I was a senior at uh, um, FU, Franklin University. Okay, some people would call it Franklin University College of Knowledge. You guys can figure out the acronym on that one too, right? Okay, <laughs> we'll have it linked up in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, good. Um, so, um, so, 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 we decided to become uh, chimney sweeps. So, what's the first thing you have to learn? Um, in order to become a chimney sweep, you got to learn to what sweep chimney. Exactly. Well. 
uh, we kind of took a different path and we figured, well, we better go get some customers first <laughs> to see if we can get customers. And then we'll figure out how to do this thing. So what we did is um, we got on the telephone and back then there was a book called A Crisscross. That's long gone, but the crisscross was you could you could look at a street name and it would have everybody listed on the street on that street with their telephone number. So what we did, we started calling in Bexley. I grew up in the Berwick area, um, a, a Columbus suburb close to Bexley. So we started calling up and we would we would ask people, uh, hey, uh, we would let them know that it's time for your annual chimney inspection. And the name of the company, our name of the company, was Sweep in the City. Probably all they heard was city and annual inspection. So a lot of people said, sure, come on out. And we scheduled them every 15 minutes where we came out, we put a flashlight up into the chimney. Well, nobody ever had their chimneys clean. And this was in 1981, by the way. So most people said, sure, let's clean my chimney. And we had no idea what, it, what we should charge. And every chimney, we didn't even know what a dirty or a clean chimney looked like, but nobody had them, they looked dirty, okay? And they were dirty. So we booked up two weeks of schedule. Well, then after you book up two weeks of schedule, then you have to learn to do what? Now you got to sweep the chimney. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what we did is um, we, uh, my partner was Ralph. We cleaned his mom's chimney and it took us all day because we got the brush, the chimney brush stuck in the chimney and couldn't figure out how to get it out. So that was, that was day number one. Then day number two, we cleaned my parents' chimney and they never really used the fireplace. So it didn't take very long because it was sparkling clean. Then we became professional chimney sweeps on Monday. And that year, our first year of chimney cleaning, we made $55,000 each. And not bad for 1981, a kid right out of school. And I will tell you, interestingly enough, uh, that was the least amount of money that I've made since annually, that $55,000. So that was the floor. But my partner, that was, you know what, it might be about the most money he's ever made, even to this day, because... He, was, he, he said, hey, we got all this money. I'm going to take an extended vacation. <laughs> well, the work ethic wasn't there, so we split. And then, and then I, continued into the, I continued in the chimney sweep business. So fast forward, I was cleaning chimneys, making money, doing fine. Chimney sweep was growing, the business. And then it was a snowy day. I got in a, a traffic accident, and I ran into the back of uh, another friend from high school who happened to be in the heating and cooling business, meaning he was a heating and cooling technician. And um, um, so he said, hey, Steve, don't worry about the truck. The truck was a little bashed in. I'll just tell my boss that I backed up into a tree or something. So I said, hey, that's fine. Drinks are on me. So we spent the whole afternoon uh, at the bar drinking. And he said in the heating and cooling business, there was all kinds of money. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I, you know, I was making money, but, but there must be more money in the heating and cooling business. So uh, we decided at the end of the day that we're going to go into the heating and cooling business together. And um, so um, um, we had to come up with, uh, with a name. So back then, the big company, the two big companies in town, uh, there was a company called uh, Airtron and there was a company called Airflow. So we're thinking Airtron and Airflow. So we came up with the, uh, with the uh, creative name of Airtrol. And back then, everything was yellow pages, right? I mean, that was, there was no internet. This was in 1986, by the way. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we had business cards made up. You know, I already had a couple trucks. I figured this isn't going to be too tough. I bought a little location over on Westerville Road. Two week, and then we got a full page ad in the yellow pages. Well, we, I bought the ad. We designed it in this ad. 
said heating and cooling, big, you know, full page ad. And then it showed eight trucks that all said air troll, air troll, air troll, air troll, eight trucks that we didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. Well, two weeks before the deadline of the yellow pages, um, before they were going to print, um, my quote unquote partner in this, um, he said, Hey, I can't do it. My wife said, if I quit my job, um, uh, then she would uh, basically leave him. So I was like, well, that's great. What do I do now? So, you know, I figured that, um, I had, uh, two trucks and, um, I had a location and I had heard, I had heard that there was all kinds of money to be made in the roofing business. And, um, um, so I figured, you know what, I'll go into roofing. <laughs> and you're still running the chimney business? That I was still running the chimney business, uh, and it was doing well. And I figured, well, how hard can roofing be, right? So we took the we took the, the, the same ad. So instead of heating and cooling, now it said, what do you think? Roofing. Exactly. And all those trucks that said air trawl, air trawl, air trawl, air trawl, well, the name of the company had to begin with A. Because back then, everything was alphabetical in the yellow pages. In fact, interestingly enough, you would see ads that um, there would be plumbing companies that would have A, 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 Aardvark, Advanced Plumbing. So they could get first. Because, you know, people start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it had to begin with A. A. And um, so I went through, see what was registered in the name Abel, Abel Roofing had not been registered, so I registered the name and we changed all those trucks to Able, 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 Able Roofing, published the ad, and um, and by the way, back then, um, uh, it was a $28,000 ad in 1986 to put a full page ad into the yellow pages. Uh, and, and I'll make note of that a little bit later, uh, why that why that's important. So, um, so people started calling me. Well, what do you have to do <laughs> when you open up a, a, a roofing company, but you've never roofed before? Well, you got to get business. Well, the business started coming in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so then what we had to do is I had to learn how to roof. Um, and I'd never done a roof before. So I put an ad in the paper for some roofers. I've talked to them on the phone. And the question would invariably lead to, so how do you do this? <laughs> so the deal was they would tell me how much it would cost to do the roof. And then I would meet with the homeowner at the time, and there was a spread, which was called profit, and people, you know, I started getting people just to say, yeah, we'll do it. And then I started really kind of was on-the-job training, and I read a little bit, but it was kind of just on-the-job training, just kind of learned, uh, and just kind of learned how to, uh, to roof. Now, I will tell you a little secret. Um, obviously the company got very, very large and to this day, I still have never installed a roof, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but it doesn't matter because I can get up on a roof and I can tell you what's wrong with it and how to do it. I just don't know how to actually do it or I just don't have to do it. Um, but you don't have to necessarily know how to do it to run, to actually, actually do it. Because at the end of the day, I think we were really a sales and marketing company that just happened to sell roofing. So let's fast forward. I'll fast forward to 1988. So we'd been in business two years. The business started doing pretty well. 100% of our business, of our new business was coming from the yellow pages. So, um, so what every business owner does when these new yellow pages come out, and we were the full page ad, we were first in the yellow pages. Um, you know, you look to see what your ad looks like, who else is in there, what the competition is. There was only one problem the yellow pages, they forgot to put my ad in. 
So they left my ad out. And that was 100% of my business. And, 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 and actually, that was probably, uh, that was probably a, a real turning point in my life. Because I thought when they left my, my ad out, I, I, my instant thought was, well, I'm out of business. Because that's where all my business was coming from. I didn't know, any, I didn't know how to get any other business. So, so remember I said an ad was $28,000. So um, I didn't have to spend the $28,000, obviously, okay, because they didn't produce the ad because <laughs> you paid on a monthly basis. So to settle, the Yellow Pages actually wrote me a check for $28,000, i.e. those were the damages. So uh, they wrote me a check for $28,000 plus the $28,000 that I didn't have to spend, now I had a $56,000 advertising budget. And um, so with that $56,000 advertising budget, I had to do something. I couldn't do Yellow Pages, so it forced me to do other things. So we did some direct mail. We did um, some coupon type of magazines. We did some radio and we did some television. And, um, and guess what? Um, that worked, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so people started calling. Then the next year, of course, I got back into the yellow pages. So now, and I kept and I kept doing all the other stuff. And all of a sudden, the business it just it just took off, and the business really started to, started to accelerate. And the business just went and went. And uh, fast forward to uh, 1992 and 1992, I think we were doing. I don't know. I think we were doing maybe maybe a million and a half, something like that. And I remember driving down the road, and um, and in fact, I remember the day, um, and I saw a, a real estate sign that said four 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 sale, and which is a pretty good telephone number if if you're in the real estate business. And then I remember seeing a truck and it was heading up uh, uh, seventy one north. And there was a competitor that had 471 roof. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of clever. And that was in the day where vanity numbers weren't, weren't so prevalent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I saw 444 sale and I saw 471 roof. And I thought, well, you know what, 444 roof is probably a pretty good telephone number. And uh, so I called 444 roof. It was disconnected. And um, um, so a week later, I, I was able to capture the number 444 roof. And then we came up with a jingle, Able 444 roof, which was called Able for the Proof 444 roof. And the business just took off. And, that's, and that would be the power of branding. And then we, then we started to develop a brand at that point. And people could remember the brand, the jingle, the look. And then, and then, business, then business really took off from there. So I can keep going or you guys could ask me a question. There's a lot there. That I have a lot of questions lined up. So looks like Josh had one right on his mind, though, right off the bat. Yellow page SEO before it was cool is the first thing that pops in my mind. Right. <laughs> very, like, very interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear, though, at what point did you stop bringing these people on as contractors and start hiring full-time employees? Or did they start as full-time employees? Because it sounds like they were kind of contracting at first. So, yeah. So this is probably what's interesting. So I was kind of forced to hire, uh, to quote-unquote outsource, uh, because... Um, uh, doing it in-house, uh, you know, hiring people. I had to really outsource crew, so to speak. Um, so I started hiring pretty pretty quickly. I'd say within that first year, I started hiring one, two, three people. 
Um, one of the one of the first people that I hired, actually, I already had a sales manager in my chimney suite business who ran the sales on a day to day basis, and he also came along for, for that ride with me. And then I hired somebody who was kind of a kind of a I don't know if he was more or less a handyman who could do a lot of different things, and he figured some things out. Um, but I, I outsource a lot of it and that was probably what was different between me and my competitors because a lot of the competitors did it in house and I outsource and I put more money into, uh, management and quality control where they put more money into the employees. And, um, so I was probably an early outsourcer in the roofing business because that was really unheard of at the time. Most of them had all of their in-house crews. Well, I kind of quote unquote, we subcontracted. And um, that allowed me to be uh, a lot more nimble because when business was up, when business was down, I could adjust and I, I was pretty nimble. I could adjust pretty quickly. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I think there's one thing that stuck out though in terms of you said you put more into quality control and I think that would be counterintuitive to some people to think that you're outsourcing but focusing on quality control. So how did it work when you were using these contractors to make sure that you're delivering the same level of service? Well, you know, if you were going to outsource, um, if you're going to outsource, quality control was really important, especially, especially, well, in any business because they didn't quite have the buy-in. They didn't quite have the buy-in as maybe an employee would have. They didn't. They weren't in it for the long game. They were probably in it for the short game. So, um, so their care level, uh, their sense of craftsmanship might be a little bit lower. But but my manager was an employee, and his sense of craftsmanship was a little bit higher. So he held their feet to the fire, and and you know it's kind of interesting how you can hold people accountable with their paychecks. So he held them accountable. They that hey, you do it this way. Here's the spec. You do it this way. You get paid. You don't do it this way. Your money gets held up. So you know we have pretty good leverage uh, on doing that. Yeah, and so kind of what I'm interested in is as the business continued to grow. You mentioned you never had to touch a roof, right? You've never. Well, not touch a roof, but you've never had to build a roof. So as the business continued to grow, how did your role shift and change from maybe more of a selling point to the management point is until you get to that point uh, where we're at uh, currently? So I know we haven't jumped into the Sandler training at all yet, but up to that point, how did your role change? Um, you know, uh, certainly every entrepreneur, when you start out, you wear every hat. It's just that simple. Then you have to figure out the things that, uh, you know, you got to figure out what you like to do and what you're good at, and then you got to figure out what you, uh, uh, you know, what you don't like to do and what you're not good at. And the stuff that I didn't like to do and I wasn't good at, those that's where I was going to hire somebody to to do that because they're going to do it better than me. So the stuff that I was, the stuff that I was naturally good at and liked to do, um, I liked marketing and I liked selling. Uh, those were those were those were those were my sweet spots. Uh, managing the crews on a daily basis, I did not really care for that. Um, um, the office, managing the office, I didn't really care for that, which is kind of typical of an entrepreneur. So, um, you know, in every organization you might have the, um, you, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are what, what you might call visionaries. You know, they got those, 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 those wild hair ideas. Some of them are good, some of them are not, but those, 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 some of those ideas, they work. And then you take those ideas and they're always thinking outside the box and, and a little bit differently than the masses. So, so the, I was probably the visionary. Then you need the, uh, the implementers or the integrators, some people would call. Uh, I tended to hire the integrators, the people who could actually kind of, you know, 
the doers, the people who had run the business. Mine was more about improving the business, maybe growing the business. So um, I recognize that pretty early on because if you're stuck in that run mode, you're only going to grow so much. And you're going to do a lot of stuff you don't like to do. Yeah, and you know, it's something odd to me that I always hear, you know, people talk about the, the doers versus the visionaries. And it's, and it's funny because I think people get this misconception sometimes. That successful entrepreneurs just come up with ideas and then tell other people to do it. But, you know, like, like I'm saying, like that. Well, we are talking to a guy who came up with a roofing business without knowing how to build a roof. Right. So, <laughs> very right, much yeah. might right. be spot well, on. Well, I know, but like that, what I'm saying is that he had to do things. Like, it's not like you just, yeah, I want to build a roofing company. All right, you, come here. You're going you're gonna to go find me some customers. And you, it's not that way. That You had to go find the customers and all the things and build the company and then hire the people to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas some people, I think, get that misconception that, oh, like, I just thought up a great idea and then grabbed some people around me and it just happened. And, and there's you know I mean? a hard process between that ideation to actually putting it from zero to one, you know, and I think that's um, where a lot of people struggle because you'd listen to entrepreneurs talk about it and it's that zero to one step they usually skip over because it just comes so natural to them. But the people who aren't entrepreneurs, that's kind of where they miss it. And there's like granular details there in terms of how you kind of get scrappy and, and put the pieces together. Um, yeah, you know, you, 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 you know you'd, I'd like to say that I had a business plan. Uh, it was, uh, it was, there was no business plan. It was just go out there and, and do it. And, and, and what's very interesting is, um, uh, candidly, um, candidly, and by the way, I don't say honestly anymore. <laughs> and I teach my clients, you know, sometimes, well, can I be honest? We don't say that anymore. We say, let's be candid or can I be candid? Because if I say honestly, it means maybe everything I told you <laughs> before that wasn't so honest, right? Okay. Just something has popped up. Um, but candidly, I didn't really have a business plan and I didn't think I'd be in the business for long because I looked at it as, I, di- I didn't look at it as, as long game. I didn't look at this as this is what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't look at this, that this is something that actually, I could actually, uh, grow and sell that there was equity there. I looked at it as a way to make money mm-hmm. and basically this was going to do for a living. And you know what? After a few years, I'll do this and you know what? I'll, I'll drift into something else. And that's really when I started this. And even, even I got to tell you, even three, four, five years in it, I thought I was going to do something else. Somebody said, how long are you going to be in the roofing business? I, said, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll drift into something else. I'll get bored with this or find something better. And well, I didn't find something better, okay, um, at the time. But so there was no. But yeah, from an entrepreneur standpoint, it doesn't all have to be right. But... You know, you have to understand from the market standpoint, you can have great ideas, but if you don't have a way to bring it to market or to sell it, you better, you better rethink it. So it's all about, it's all about the front end. The front end is how are we going to get, you know, who's going to buy it and how are we going to sell it and how we're going to market that. You better have that figured out because that's where a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, they got great ideas, but nothing ever happens and they got to figure that piece out. And some of the people with great ideas, they, you know, that's not, that's not their sweet spot either. Right. So it's probably a good transition where we're going to go to next. And we got the jingle. We got the phone number. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe let's talk about, you know, growing the business and then exiting in it. And then we can jump in and finish up with what you have going on with Sandler and everything going on today. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So, um, so okay. So, so uh, things are taking off. Things are doing well. The business is, the business, the business is growing. And, um, um, and, and I'll kind of tie the whole uh, – uh, how I exited the business and um, and how Sandler came in because they're all kind of they're all kind of put together. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because because I got introduced to Sandler, and I'll explain what Sandler is. I got introduced to Sandler in 1998, and uh, and that was and that's and that's when my roofing company was actually doing. We were doing 10 million dollars in 1998. So I am at a um, I'm at a uh, a workshop, and and today it's called Vistage, and um, it, it's called Vistage, and um, uh, back then it was called Tech. So Vistage is a group of CEOs. It's a national organization. They basically get together and they commiserate uh, with their problems, and it's a group think type of thing. And uh, uh, and then we bring speakers in. Well, this was 1998, and um, um, I was at one of our functions, uh, monthly functions, and they brought this speaker in from New York City, and he was a Sandler sales trainer. And he started saying some things that really, really, um, really appealed to me and really resonated with me. And because up until uh, 1998, I will tell you, um, we had, uh, we did have a selling system and the selling system would, uh, it would be the SOP selling system. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of the SOP selling system. SOP selling. No, not off the top of my head, no. Well, it stands for seat of pants, okay? Kind of like my (laughs) business plan (laughs) at the time, okay? Because, Because we did things by the seat of our pants and we hired people with people skills. And we figured, well, if you have good people skills and you were influential, you could sell. You could sell. Well, the problem is our competition, they had people skills too. So uh, what I discovered was we were getting our fair share of the business. Um, and um, and the fair share, is, fair share is okay. You can make a good living make, you know, getting your fair share of the business. Um, and what I have found is uh, that... My clients today, a lot of them are getting their fair share of the business, and I'll explain. So, so back then, our closing ratio, meaning our win rate, was about one out of every three. So one out of every three homeowners uh, would buy from us. So I'll ask you guys, um, uh, in people's minds, how many? if you're buying a roof, how many estimates what's what, what's what's the what's the obligatory amount of estimates that somebody's supposed to get probably around three yeah well i don't where did that come from right i mean <laughs> i and that's not and that's generational i mean you because yeah. you're young guys okay you ask somebody who's 80 they're gonna say three well that's, i don't know where that came from but so everybody would get three estimates and we got our fair share which was what third a third yeah which is 33 percent and people that come to me i ask them, what's your closing ratio and they tell me oh about 33 percent and a lot of companies they get estimates and and so i i find that most people get 25 33 percent win rate and 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 that's what we were getting well what i found was if we brought in a uh, a repeatable trainable proven successful sales process which that really at the end of the day that's what sandler is it's a communication system adapted to selling I realized and discovered that we could get our unfair share. Now, my wife hates it when I say unfair share because she thinks there's something like not right about that. But it would be more than our fair share. I like it's unfair share. So we get our unfair share, and that's what happened. And the business went from ten million dollars to a hundred and five million dollars ten years later. Now it's not all because we put in a sales process, but that had a lot to do with it because now now we could expand and we could bring a a a repeatable, trainable process 
proven successful to each of our locations and plug people in and we understood where we were in the sale what was going on and it was a process and it allowed us to control the outcome where before mm -hmm. our strategy was um, um, was really more uh, hope that hope they would like me and hope that they would buy and hope they would see value and we did everything we could to show it now uh, we take a little bit different path and we can control the outcome much better so how did those Percentages change when you implemented that system from 33% to, you know, it, it, on average, on average, we 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 pretty quickly saw a, a 10 point gain, and then we went up to closer to about 45%, yeah. um, as high as 50. Now, some people who were really really good at it, not everybody got good at it because right. you know it's uh, just because you can uh, just because you give it to somebody doesn't mean they're going to maximize it and take it or maybe have the skill set or the desire to to change because it is just it is behavioral change and but we had some people that were over over 60% because they had the process but it did but but it certainly did change things so talk about a little bit you guys make 105 million revenue um, what does, and I don't know if you're allowed to speak on this, but what does the operating profit look like in a situation like that? And then what did okay. the sale and exit process look like? Okay, fine. Yeah. Oh, that, you know, so this is, it's interesting, uh, profit margins. Um, and I deal with a lot of different companies. And profit margins are all over the place. And when I say profit margins, let's talk about net profit. That, that's just an easy thing to talk about. When I say net profit, that's after an owner's salary. That's what's left after paying the light bill, all your, your labor, your materials, all your overhead. That's what's left. That, that's, what's, that's, that's what's left. Um, so in the construction industry, it's very interesting. Uh, the lowest profit margins of the construction industry are what we call the general contractors. The general contractors, they hire, they hire roofers and they hire painters and they hire HVAC companies. And what they do is they basically mark up uh, all, all these trades. But these are very large. They can be very large jobs. Uh, on a very, very large project, some of these guys are working at 2 to 5% net profit. That's pretty skinny. Some will even work lower than that. You know, um, Remodelers for homeowners, they'll work probably closer and home improvement companies as well as maybe roofers. Probably they probably strive for more in that 10% range. Probably in the low end, probably seven to eight, up to maybe 13, 14, 15. So so a good year for us was probably in that 10% range. That was realistic. But there's also companies out there. I just uh, talked to a company the other day, um, and um, um, they told me they're they're about a fourteen million dollar company, and uh, they are running at a fifty percent net profit. And I asked him, I said, no, 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 I mean, I mean, not net profit, not gross profit, net profit. And he said, no, we're running at fifty percent. And I talked to their financial advisor who referred me to them. And I go, so let me ask you something. You know about this business, right? Are they running at 50% net profit? He goes, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's pretty good net profit, right? Not $14 million. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, profit, it's, if you got something unique and people want it, you know, profit's not a dirty word. And that's pretty impressive. Um, I think that answers your question, right? Yeah, it definitely does. And maybe we can transition from that into talking more about the Sandler training that you guys are doing today and how you're working with these different business owners that you just mentioned. Sure. Well, I'll tell you the transition of how I got out of the business, okay? So uh, so a financial advisor, uh, somebody who was investing for me, said, hey, Steve, if you, um, 
if you ever feel like selling your business, um, I've got uh, I've got people who might be interested in buying. And when he when he mentioned that to me, honestly, I never thought about selling my business, and I never even contemplated that my, my that my business was worth was worth a lot of money. So uh, I didn't think much of it. I kept it in the back of my kind of to the back of my mind. I think I was having a bad day one day, and I said, "You know, I'm going to call him <laughs> and see and see. Maybe this is a good time." So he said, "Yeah, we'll uh, we'll entertain that. I got a, somebody who might be interested." And we had lunch and we had a good conversation. And they basically sent me an offer, and they and I said and I, I said, "You'll give me how much?" <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh it was it was it was a number i couldn't refuse it was a number i couldn't refuse but the offer came with me sticking around for some years as well so um it it just seemed like you know uh if if, if it seemed like a good offer at the time and it was it, it was a good time to maybe uh, take the chips off the table and then still continue in the business and do some things and then maybe maybe kind of look for <laughs> what's the what's the next chapter so so i will say for business owners or somebody who's an entrepreneur if you want to sell your business the the key you can't you can't start or develop a company that revolves around you you have to brand it, and you have to you have to ask yourself: Will this business survive without me being there or without me being the face? And if the answer is yes, you've got a marketable you have a marketable asset. If if it's well, no, they buy because of me. It's going to be a lot tougher to sell that business or get the equity out. So when we developed the brand, the Able, the four 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 roof, I wasn't the face. Or the voice of the company as much as the able 444 roof they liked the brand so the brand could continue without me and that was the key now did i realize that when i did that no that was by accident but i realized later that the brand is is what is what made this thing more valuable so from advice standpoint um don't yeah you, it's going to start developing around you but you have to figure long term how does it not evolve around me or revolve around me how do i uh um, how do I take it more to the brand and get the brand equity? Because that will be marketable. So Sandler, should we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. so let's, let's dive into in. kind of what you're doing today with Sandler. And okay. maybe even a little bit about how, how Sandler, I mean, we already talked a little bit about how Sandler kind of helped out with Able, but maybe get a little more granular into how you met them and where that where that all came into play. Okay, okay. So... So we did talk about how I kind of uh, uh, how I how I actually adopted Sandler in 1998, and I continued, and I and actually I started teaching the fundamentals after I learned it. I started teaching the fundamentals to all of my staff, all of my people, and that was really the uh, the, the the foundation of our selling system at Able, and that's what helped us get to that 105 million dollars um, after we after we adopted Sandler. So. Um, so I stuck around at Able because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, secretly, I'm probably a, um, I definitely am a, a workaholic, a workaholic by choice. I just like to work. For me, it's, it's fun. By the way, if I'm not having fun, I won't do it. So if you're having fun, it really doesn't feel like work. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, so I do work a lot. And um, so uh, in 2013, because I continue to stay with the company, more of a, a sales and marketing role, and I did come back to the company. Uh, actually, the year that we did the the, the 105 million, I actually came back. I exited as president, uh, brought in a president, trained him. He went to another company 
Uh, and then I came back as president, and that year, that and and in the in the following year, uh, that's when we did the the, the big volume and grew. Anyways, and then I kind of stepped back. I actually brought in a president to replace me, and I was more on the sales and marketing end of the business. Twenty thirteen, somebody calls me and says, "Hey, can you train my sales guys in Sandler?" And I told him, I said, "Well, I'm not a you know I don't I only do Sandler internally. I'm I'm not a Sandler coach or trainer externally." And I, and I told him to go to the local Sandler trainer. So Sandler is a network of 260 training centers worldwide. We're in 28 countries. And um, um, it actually is a franchise model. Um, so uh, he told me that, well, there is no Columbus, Ohio Sandler trainer. So the next day... Um, you know, I'm all about urgency. You know, if there's, if there's something that strikes, it's like, you know, I don't wait. I don't wait and mull it over. I call immediately. So the next day I called Sandler up and he's, and, and I called the, the guy who's head of franchise and he sees the 614 exchange and he picks up right away because he, cause, cause he knows 614, he needs somebody. So I asked him, he goes, no, we don't have anybody in the 614 closest is Dayton, Ohio. And, um, so uh, I figured at that point, um, you know what? I'm going to become a I'm going to become a Sandler trainer. So in 2013, I uh, basically took a step back from Able, and at the end of 2013, so starting in 2014, um, I, uh, I, uh, I I became a full time Sandler sales trainer. Now one of my clients was Able, <laughs> so I continued uh, to st- I continued with Able more on a uh, a contract basis. So I would continue to train for them. And then, uh, and then I work with a lot of other companies, uh, a lot of companies in Columbus. What are some of the philosophies that you guys are teaching, core principles, maybe a, a 10,000 foot view that you're allowed to talk about in the training? I can talk about it all, obviously. Uh, so if you, now, if you see my license plate uh, out there when we came in, I don't know if you saw the license plate on the car or not, but it Go says- Go for no, right? You know what, very, very, exactly, very good, very perceptive. Uh, so, um, uh, go for no, you know, crazy, huh? So we teach. That's something that that's very dear to me. Go for no. So what does that mean? Well, um, so the best salespeople they get more no's than the average salesperson. And you might say, well, that doesn't seems counterintuitive. So so the good salespeople they bring decisions to no or they bring it to yes. The average salesperson they bring it to. Hey, looks great. Let me think about it. So they bring it to that indecision. And in and, 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 and the world of selling, we all have a common competitor. The common competitor is procrastination and indecision. And if we can help people make good decisions and get it to a no or a yes, that's fine. And we are very comfortable with the no because if it's not a good fit, you know what? Let's get that no out quickly. Because at the end of the day, guys, there is an unlimited amount of money out there there is so much money and we can keep on making more and more and more money it's unlimited but you know what is limited time and we can't make more time so what we have to do is we have to maximize our time well your average salesperson spends too much time with the wrong people chasing leads that they shouldn't be chasing the good salespeople they bring it to a no or a yes and nothing in between and they help their they help their buyers figure that out and they and they uh, and and they they kind of set it up, and they have a process for for doing that. Definitely. So, maybe talk a little bit about kind of what your process would look like if someone was to say, "Hey, 
you know, maybe I'm interested in learning more about Sandler. Mm-hmm. What would you start with? Where would you start out in their sales process? How would you kind of adjust that without giving too much away, obviously? Maybe, uh, maybe we can even get more granular. I mean, Mike and I are both in sales right now for a startup software company. Yeah. Do you work more with like the more, um, let's say like construction B2C. focused, like B2C type businesses or is B2B at play? And Yes. <laughs> yes. Everything. <laughs> you know, I will tell you that, <clears throat> I'll tell you that uh, 80% of my clients... 80% of my clients are B2B. Um, I will tell you, I like the B2C. The B2C is a shorter, it is a shorter sales cycle. And that would be, you, you, that might be what we would call the one call close, meaning it's not a long cycle. It could be, uh, but it's typically a shorter cycle. The B2B side, many times, that can be short cycle, but a lot of times it's more consultative, longer process, different layers. So more of my customers are in that arena. Now, who would be my typical customer? Um, I have manufacturers. I have IT uh, companies. I have distributors. Um, I have marketing companies. Um, I've got, um, uh, you know, I have some CPAs, um, engineers. You know, it is across, it is just really across the gamut. I've got uh, people in the consumer packaged goods where they have stuff on store shelves, um, construction, and I've got a number of construction companies. And the interesting thing about the construction world is that might, a lot of them are, they're, they're stuck in what we would call bid mentality, and we have to take them from bidding to selling. And, and that changes the game completely. Unfortunately, most of their competitors are bidding, and if they turn bidding into selling, they're going to capture a lot more of the work, get their unfair share of the business. Right. Does Sandler Training believe in like the cold call approach to landing customers, or is there like a certain method that you guys approach new leads? You know, it's it's interesting. So we've got a lot of different uh, you got a lot of different ways, but I will tell you, are people lining up at my door uh, to say, "Hey, I need I need sales training"? It would be nice. But not really, because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know the path. You know, how did I know? Was I looking for sales training when I met up with the Sandler trainer coming from New York in this session? No, I never. I never thought about it in a million years. However, I saw something, and it was like, wow, I need that. So, yeah, cold calling. But let's face it, cold calling sucks, right? <laughs> I mean, who wants to cold call? I, you know, and I've never seen a line formed to cold call either. So. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, but some people, they have to cold call, but there's an efficient way to cold call. So we actually have an interesting technology uh, that um, we're talking about outsourcing. Were we outsourcing all the gatekeeper, uh, all the gatekeeper calling? We actually outsource that overseas, and it's a live platform where I have my headset on, and I've got six, seven people um, in uh, India, actually, and they're calling a list of maybe a couple thousand CEOs and one of those CEOs will pick up and immediately I'll be talking to a CEO and I'm talking to eight to 12 CEOs in an hour. And so I don't cold call and talk to gatekeepers anymore. I just talk to CEOs. I let them do all the busy work to get me through and I'm the one talking to the CEOs. It's a very interesting technology and uh, it's something that's brand new now. Five years from now, nobody's going to pick up their phone. <laughs> but right now, people occasionally, they're still picking up their phone, so the technology so the technology works. Yeah, and so maybe let's talk a little bit about your personal goals now for the future of uh, what you're doing here with Sandler. Do you plan on founding another company down the road, or do you plan on continuing with Sandler? And 
uh, outside of uh, never having to set an alarm again. <laughs> well, uh, I'm serious about not setting that alarm. I hope to get to 100%, but I think that might be a little impossible. So five to 10 years. Well, let, let me back up one thing. You would ask, how would how would somebody get engaged with Sandler? So, um, uh, so you and I were talking, right, about how would somebody get engaged? So uh, I know we probably have, we have thousands of listeners out there. Um, do they have a way of contacting me? Is, yeah, is that, that'll know? be linked up in the show notes. So if you guys want to get in touch with Steve, there'll be a link to his website and anything else you want to link down there, we can put down there in the, uh, in the notes. Okay, that's fine. I'll put my, I'll put my email address on there if, if somebody wants to link up and, and we have workshops, very similar workshop to the same workshop that I was involved in, in 1998. It's interesting. The message that I learned that I got in 1998, I, I, give that same message in a two-hour workshop and and sometimes people see something and that's what engages people so that's probably where people come they come they do a workshop um and they hear something or they don't hear something if they hear something that's step number one and then we deliver it in a lot of different ways so if somebody wants to get a hold of me that that would be probably the the best way so um so five to ten years down the way um you know, that's a good question. Um, um, you know, as long as I like what I'm doing, I'll keep doing it. And uh, right now, uh, it's, it's, it's fun. So, you know, I get to get up in front of a bunch of people and perform. And it's kind of, it's kind of like, I would tell you my job is, is probably, um, I'm probably more of uh, an entertainer. <laughs> okay so i get to have fun do a few jokes i mean if, the, if they're not having fun they're not learning i kind of feel so right. we want to keep it kind of fun um and i get to help people and i get to help people you know I've, i fortunately i've had some good breaks and i've done pretty well and maybe i can share some of that with some other people and show them the path because because you know what a lot of people can be successful but a lot of people don't know the path so maybe I can show them the path and they can, you know, maybe, maybe we can share some of that with, with other people. So, so, so as long as I can help people and have fun, that's, that's great. And the other aspect of it is um, I get to learn. Um, man, if you're not learning, I don't care at what age, you've got to continue to learn. So some people are learners, some people are not. And, you know, I'll ask, I'll ask people who are, uh, I'll ask people who are, um, 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 who are interviewing for uh, for a job? What's the, what's the last two books that you read? Tell me a little bit about them, because I like learners, right? So um, the uh, um, so I get to learn. So how do I present? Am I can I do it a better way? New concept, new theories, new 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 ways to actually present. So I go uh, to Sandler conferences uh, every uh, uh, every every trimester. So we do three a year, and I hear other Sandler trainers. And we present to each other, and it's like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And we learn how to present. And I'm always listening. Interestingly enough, if you look at my phone, I probably have 50 different uh, books and and podcasts and audios from different sales trainers throughout the world. I listen to them all. I'm a Sandler trainer, but you know what? I'm a little bit sales agnostic because everybody's got something that they can, that a good idea. It's just Sandler's got more of those good ideas. That's why I'm a Sandler trainer. So five to 10 years, I don't know. I think I might be doing the same thing, um, you know, on my terms, right? Right. <laughs> Which is not setting the alarm, right? Yep. And just working as much as I want to work. Exactly. So uh, one of the last questions we always like to end with, uh, focuses around the theme of our show. 
which is live uncomfortably. Okay. And for us, you know, it focuses on the idea you can't improve if you're not pushing yourself past your comfort zones. Uh, but what does the phrase mean to you and how does it apply to your life? Um, I like that. I, I saw that, uh, live uncomfortably. And, and our spin on that would be uh, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, very, very similar, right? Um, you know, we all get into our comfort zones. That's, I mean, everybody, right? And I think what you have to do in that, um, you know, so I'm going to go way, way back. So, um, so when I had my chimney sweep company, I had a fear of heights. I mean, I mean, a terrible fear of heights where if I could, I'd get on a six foot step ladder to change a light bulb and I'd get weak in the knees and I've always felt like I was going to fall. Well, you can't be in that chimney sweep business or roofing business because you do go up on roofs and look at things, okay? You can't be in that business. Well, when my partner went away, the guy who didn't want to work, guess what? I was forced to get up on a ladder and it scared me to death, but I had to make a living. So what I do? I forced myself, I forced myself to do it. Uh, a few years later, I could walk. I could work. I could walk on a skyscraper on the uh, pretty much at the edge of the roof, not even think twice about it. So that phobia went away. So I used to have a fear. What's the, what, by the way? I'll ask you guys. What's what do you think the number one fear of most human beings is? It's got to be heights, right? Spiders Rejection. Maybe? What's that? Rejection. Public speaking. There it is. Uh, all those. All those are good. Public, public speaking. speaking. Yeah, people <laughs> have a fear of public speaking. Well, how do you fix that? You volunteer to public speak. So Oof. people would ask me, hey, can you give a talk on something? Or we need a speaker for this. So what did I do? I didn't want to do it. I figured, you know, I got a fear of public speaking. I pushed myself and forced myself to get up in front of people to speak. Well, over time, that that went away. And now if it doesn't matter how big the audience is. Yeah, occasionally a little butterfly for just like literally the last 10 seconds. But... Um, um, it doesn't matter the size. It said that went away. So, so you know, people know what their comfort zones are, where they're not comfortable. So I say push yourself out of that comfort zone. And what is uncomfortable, it's that you know you're just going to get another layer of muscle. What you know, what won't kill you, make you stronger, or whatever. But that's that's what it means to me is uh, understand the things, understand the rut that you're in, and how do you get that out of that rut? And we can change things in our lives. We just better have a plan. And then, of course, what? It's um, it's y your behavior. So, you know, you can have a great attitude. Yeah, I want to change. But if you don't if you don't go through the behaviors, then you'll never do it. So, you know, you don't have to like it. You just got to do it if you want to change. Otherwise, you know what? Stay where you are. And that might be okay for you, too. How, you know, that's, that's, you know, people have their own reasons for doing things. So I think that might answer your question. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> right? Steve. Well... Thanks a lot for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time to tell your story here on the show with us. Uh, is there any last words you want to say to uh, our listeners? Uh, no, you know, I'd say the only thing, you know, find, find something that you love to do because a lot of people are doing things they don't love to do. So if you're lucky enough to find what you love to do, then you know what? The next thing is just figure out a way to figure a way to do it. Maybe figure a way to monetize it so you can actually make a living doing it and then you can live, you can live what you love to do. Perfect. All right, Conquerors. Well, thanks for listening. That's Steve Weil, uh, founder of Able Roofing and now currently the Sandler trainer here in the Columbus area. All his info will be in the show notes if you guys want to reach out. Again, uh, thanks for joining us today, and we will talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. 
And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.